Hi, how are you doing? This week, for the very first time in this series, I'm going to be getting in the car. I'm hoping to record for you an incredibly unearthly sound and the journey is a little bit too long for the Duchess. My name's Melissa Harrison and I'm a novelist and nature writer who lives in rural Suffolk. Through summer and into autumn, I'm going to help you keep in touch with the natural world and the changing seasons. Welcome to episode 13 of The Stubborn Light of Things. at my destination, an area of low-lying sandy heath covered in heather, bracken and gorse and dotted with silver birches and with some big areas of forestry too. It's about 9.40, 9.45 and the light is fading. The unearthly noise I've come here to record, which may or may not happen, is the night jar. They're a migratory species, so they're here in the summer months. And if you look up a picture of them online, you'll see how incredibly weird they are. Their plumage is very cryptic, which means that their camouflage is incredible. And they can lie along a branch and just disappear. They've got huge black eyes because they're nocturnal. And their beak is almost invisible. They don't really need it for much, the sticky out part of the beak. Because the way they hunt is by flying around at night with their mouths open like little basking sharks. Catching moths. Added to how odd they look is the strangeness of their chur. And the oddness of their flight too, because if you see one flying when it's hunting moths, it's dipping and turning and twisting. It looks very odd. So all sorts of myths and legends are built up around them. They used to be called goat suckers, because it was believed they came and sucked the milk of goats. And that's recorded as far back as Aristotle. Gilbert White referred to them as the fern owl, or sometimes the churn owl, night hawks, eve jar, wheel bird, and my favourite, puckeridge. I've recorded them in this spot before, a couple of years ago. And I know of a few other locations um, within my short 
driving radius. But I'm really hoping to hear one tonight. When I was here before, I opened the car door and could hear one straight away. So obviously I thought that's what would happen, but no such luck. My nature notebook columns for the Times will be collected together and published in October as the stubborn light of things. This column is from this time last year. I popped round to the cottage I used to live at uh, a few days ago to retrieve my big saucepan, which I had left behind. And I'm glad to say that the front garden is still a firework box of lupins and still a feast of aphids for sparrows. Do think before removing food sources for other animals like aphids. As Gilbert White understood, the natural world is a complex web of interdependencies which don't always mirror our own preferences but are vital all the same. The Times Nature Notebook, June 2019 I returned from a week's walking holiday in the Austrian Tyrol to find that a growth spurt fed by sunshine and showers had turned my front garden into a firework box of lupins and the few feet of lawn at the back into a mini wildflower meadow. I was thrilled by how full of life it all was. From the broad-bordered bee hawk moth my neighbour emailed me about while I was halfway up an alp, to the froghopper nymphs wrapped in gobs of cuckoo spit in the long grass, and even the aphids encrusting the older lupin stems, Fantastic news for my local sparrows, as they rely on aphids to feed their young. Watching the adult birds cling to the tall stems to pick them off, ferrying beakful after beakful to their importunate young, made me feel proud to supply food for a new generation of these cheerful but declining birds. I thought about insects a lot while I was on holiday, and how fundamental they are to the survival of birds, bats, small rodents, and all sorts of other creatures further up the food chain. I walked in ancient, unimproved alpine meadows, still cut by hand and untreated with biocides, that contained a dizzyingly diverse mix of grasses and wildflowers. Bladder campion, red and white clover, pig nuts, chamomile, toad flax, dandelions, vetches, arnica, speedwell, buttercups, and in the higher pastures, pasca flowers, velvet bells, wild crocuses, mountain primroses and gentians so staggeringly blue they hurt the eyes. Because of this diversity, there were insects everywhere, too many to count or even for me to recognise. Day-flying moths, bees of various kinds, spiders, flying beetles, fat field crickets, flies, forest ants, shield bugs, grasshoppers, and on one steep path to a summer farm where the bell-clonking cattle had just been led to graze, a cloud of perhaps a hundred tiny blue butterflies that billowed up from a muddy patch of ground and enveloped me like a cloud. One of the most common flowers in the Austrian meadows was yellow rattle, whose old country names include pots and pans, hen pennies, shackle caps, tidder bottles, and gauk's shilling in Scotland, gauk meaning cuckoo. A semi-parasitic annual, sometimes referred to as the meadow maker, it takes some of its nutrients from vigorous species like grass and clover, preventing them from overgrowing and outcompeting other plants. When it dies off in autumn, it leaves useful gaps for other species to colonise, and it's also the food plant for the larvae of two rare moths. 
In times gone by, it was sometimes regarded as a nuisance, as too much of it in a field could reduce hay yields. Nowadays, as we try to restore and protect biodiversity, we have a better understanding of the important job it does. Extraordinary noise. That's a male nightjar churring. He's making 28 to 42 notes per second. And the sound is modulating as he turns his head and also as he breathes. They can breathe at the same time as they chur. It sounds tropical, doesn't it? Like a marsh fog or something. The males have white spots on their tails which they use for display. And they have an extraordinary display flight which involves clapping their wings. And there's an old birder's tip. If you have a white hanky and you wave it in the air, a male nightjar will come and investigate in case it's another male. I have tried it. It didn't work. My guest this week is the writer, poet and zine maker Nina Mingia-Powells from Otearoa, New Zealand. I first came across her work in the brilliant Willow Herb Review and she also won the Nan Shepherd Prize for Small Bodies of Water, which is the name of her essay collection, which comes out from Canongate next year. The essays are on migration, swimming and growing up mixed race. Nina is the founding editor of the poetry press Bitter Melon and the author of Tiny Moons, a food memoir, and Magnolia, a poetry collection, which is out on July the 2nd. She joins us from London, where she is also thinking about an unusual bird call. This is the sound of the call of the tui, which is a very common native bird in New Zealand with the sound of cicadas in the background. And this to me is the sound of a Wellington summer, Wellington being my hometown. The sound of the tui's call is deeply embedded in my memory. I can't separate it from the smell of the sea flax and toy toy plants shaking in the wind and most of all the kofi tree in my parents garden the kofi is a very hardy native tree that has distinctive bright yellow bell-shaped flowers that bloom in aotearoa in september so they are the heralds of spring and right now in lockdown in london 
Feeling far from home, I've been thinking about this tree and the tui a lot. So I thought I'll read a poem from my upcoming collection, Magnolia, which is published by Nine Arches Press. April Kofi. When the heat wave came, my mum sent a WeChat video from Malaysia of an evening downpour. You can't see the rain, only the effects of it. A gasp from her mouth and a yellow flame tree reflected in the wet, shaking. I see a yellow blur from far away and walk closer, disbelieving. Here is a kofi tree on the edge of a garden in North London, in full bloom. For a moment, I do not breathe air, I breathe yellow, I breathe myself home. My phone vibrates, telling me, you have a new memory. Here is a stream of pictures collected into an album, all taken somewhere far away. Home is not a place, but a string of colours threaded together and knotted at one end. When people say, the hottest April day in 60 years, it becomes necessary to make note of the bright heat of the concrete, the fallen magnolias with their shy blood roots, the fingernail kofi blooms curling translucently like discarded chrysalids. Be still, you have a new memory. In her childhood bedroom, my mum slides back the mosquito net and holds her phone against the window pane, recording the rain. So I'm standing here in the dark listening to distant traffic and the very last of the bird song and the experience of listening has been changed for me during the course of this podcast partly by the attention I've been paying it and partly by the experience of listening via headphones and through my field recorder I pay a lot more attention to what I hear now. And I can hear a lot of different things. I mean, one thing is that my experience of my own voice has changed. I've gone from absolutely hating it to it not being important at all, which is great. But more than that, beginning of this podcast, Peter, the producer, and I experimented with me reading my Times columns in my car, because cars can make a good makeshift sound booth. And I played it to him. And he's a musician, much more used to working with his ears than I am. And he said, oh, no, it sounds exactly like you're in a car. 
I didn't know what he was talking about. I kept listening back to it and thinking, well, it just sounds fine to me. It sounds um, neutral, not echoey, but fine. And I've gone back since, a few weeks later. I know exactly what he means. It sounds exactly like I'm in a car. So something has changed in my perception of sound. But I used to think that sound was really neutral. It was a really objective sense. I remember after a very long and very loud house party, and I hadn't slept in a very long time, trying to convince the last of my friends who were still there the ears were just a tube from the world to your brain, by which I meant that sound was completely unfiltered. It just hit your kind of grey matter without any processing or filtering at all. And of course, that's not so. Back in February of this year, February the 14th in fact, I checked, I wrote a tweet that got quite a lot of traction about how when it was windy in the village I could hear the village church bells tolling very gently in the rushing dark. And I was convinced that was the case. I thought there were broken wooden louvers on the church tower. The wind was getting in and rocking the bells. I even got the village bell ringers to have a look and they phoned me and said there's nothing we can see, it's all fine and I thought well, really? because I can hear them and this kept going on and kept going on and I was more and more questioning why no one else in the village could hear the bells and then eventually of course I realised I have tinnitus I didn't know that tinnitus could so exactly mirror an actual sound, I thought it was a sort of interference or a low buzz I didn't realise you know people say ringing in the ears but I didn't take that literally I didn't realise it could be an auditory hallucination and I think partly this has happened because the village I've moved to is so silent it's very far from a main road and at night there's just no traffic or anything that you can hear and it's so rare to be without anthropogenic pollution. I moved here in September last year and in November I wrote a column in the Times about the silence of the village and how extraordinary it was and how it was changing my perception of sound, how I was much more alert. This is before even making the podcast. I said that you can look away from something but that you can't listen away. Of course, someone wrote in to correct me on that. But I stand by it all the same. I suspect that's too distant for you to hear. I can't get any closer because there's a fence. Behind me the road, with lots of busy cars passing on it quite loud. 
I've just seen two people get out of their car and head onto the heath with a blanket. I can promise you I know what's about to happen, which is that they're going to get bitten to death. On today's date, in 1783, Gilbert White describes his garden in high beauty, glowing with a variety of solstitial flowers. And he means the ones that bloom around the solstice, which was just a week ago. The reason that the solstice is the high point of the year, the point where growth is at its fullest, is of course because of the day length. More sunlight means more growth flowers. The natural world will stay at this point for a couple more weeks and then things will start to decline. But that's okay, there's no reason to be sad about that. It's all part of the same cycle and we need that half of the year, just as much as the growth. The point is just to notice it now, while it's happening. June the 29th, 1770. A pound of truffles were found by a truffle hunter in my brother's grove. June the 29th, 1774. Some swallows this day bring out their broods, which are perchers. They place them on rails that go across a stream and so take their food up and down the river, feeding their young in exact rotation. June the 29th, 1775. Young, minute frogs migrate from the ponds this showery weather and fill the lanes and paths. They are quite black. June the 29th, 1783. My garden is in high beauty, glowing with a variety of solstitial flowers. A person lately found a young cuckoo in a small nest built in a beech shrub at the upper end of the bostel. By watching in the morning, he soon saw the young bird fed by a pair of hedge sparrows. The cuckoo is but half-fledged, yet the nest will hardly contain him. His wings hang out, and his tail and body are much compressed and straightened. When looked at, he opens a very red, wide mouth and heaves himself up, using contortions with his neck by way of menace and picking at a person's finger if he advances it towards him. June the 29th, 1785. Distant thunder. The storm arose in the south and parted, so that we only had the skirts. When thunder arises in the south, we hardly ever receive the storm over us, because the clouds part to the right and left before they reach us, influenced, I suppose, by the hills that lie to the quarter. The walnut trees throw out shoots two or three feet below the extremities of the boughs. All above is dead. June the 29th, 1787. Gracious Street Pond dry and cleaned out. Much water in the pond on the hill. The pond at Farringdon dry. June the 29th, 1791. South Lambeth. Some swallows in this district and only two pairs of swifts and no martins. No wonder then that they are overrun with flies which swarm in the summer months and destroy their grapes. 
June the 29th, 1792. Strawberries from the woods are brought, but they are crude and pale, as might be expected. Cut off the large leaves of the colchicum, or meadow saffron, now decaying. Towards the end of August, the blossoms, called by some naked boys, will shoot out and make a pleasing appearance. There's a fox walking straight towards me. It's trotting towards me. It's about 30 yards away. It's looking at me. It's got its ears up. The wind is in my face so it can't smell me. But it can hear very good condition. Little black feet. It's coming towards me even further. It's, it's gone off into some bracken. Very curious. Not at all frightened. Can't see it anymore. It's behind the bracken. Off it goes, shooting away from me, down the path. <laughs> Little white tip to its brush, that was amazing. You just don't know what's going to happen when you go out. That was lovely. I've never been in a place with so many mosquitoes. This is actually really hard for me. I've got mosquito repellent on, but they are swarming around me. And I come up in wheels the size of digestive biscuits when I'm bitten. So I'm feeling really uncomfortable. I think I'm going to head back to my little car and pilot it home. Leave the night jars to chur all night on the heath. This week's poem is the classic Adelstrop by Edward Thomas, the perfect evocation of a late June day. It's read for you by my uncle, Martin Thurley. Yes, I remember Adelstrop, the name because one afternoon of heat, the express train drew up there unwantedly. It was late June. The steam hissed. Someone cleared his throat. No one left, and no one came on the bare platform. What I saw was Adelstrop, only the name. And willows, willow herb but grass, and meadow sweet and haycocks dry, no whit less still and lonely fair than the high cloudlets in the sky. And for that minute a blackbird sang close by, and round him mistier, farther and farther, all the birds of Oxfordshire and Gloucestershire.